The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Let me start with a question. Have you ever been in a no-lose situation? A situation that's win-win no matter which way you go. It, it turns out well. It will turn out beneficial. Well, I read an article earlier this week describing a win-win situation. It goes like this. It says, uh, hold on a second. Sorry, I got to get to the right place. It says, you probably have not heard about the gubernatorial race between Terry Branstadt and Jack Hatch, but it's an important contest for the mustached Americans of America. Perhaps you're thinking, isn't Iowa a relatively irrelevant plot of land somewhere between North Dakota and Guam? Actually, there's a lot to like about Iowa, according to Scott Sipker, and now there's even more. Brandstadt and Hatch is not only a watershed moment for people of mustaches, mustache American descent, but more importantly, sorry, my, my uh, iPad is wigging out here, but more, it must not like mustaches, but more importantly, it is a no-lose situation as well. Both Mr. Brandstadt and Hatch are mustached Americans. And say what you wish about either man's politics. AMI, American Mustache Institute, does not take any political opinion. But simply knowing that someone who is 38% better looking than a mortal, clean-shaven candidate will make Iowa a haven for a dynamic, mustached American lifestyle. Additionally, according to AMI, American Mustache Institute, Research, ensuring a mustached American remains in the Iowa governor's chair will improve key economic drivers towards the state's prosperity. So whether you vote Brandstadt or Hatch, just know that Iowa is better for it. Do I get any amens from mustached people of America here? Jeff Rick, amen, right? So now this is silly, right? Clearly, clear, like clean-shaven men are more handsome, but it's a silly article. But what they're saying is they are in a no-lose situation. It is a win-win situation. Today, the Apostle Paul reminds us that all who are in Christ are in a no-lose situation. That all we can do is win. If you would please open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I am struggling with this iPad here, the joy of electronics. It is wigging out on me. Try this here. Philippians chapter 1. Otherwise, I'm just going to preach from the top of my head, I guess. Let's see here. We'll do this. Casey, would you bring my computer up here for me? Thanks. Um, As we look at Philippians chapter 1, we are going to be reminded of what God is doing in the church of Philippi. If you remember in Acts chapter 16, uh, we read about the planting of Jacob's well. Sorry. Yeah, but no, that's okay. Thank you, though. Thanks for your help. We, are, we looked back in Acts chapter 16 at the planting of Jacob's well church. Thank you very much. And we saw how Paul came to Macedonia, to the region of Macedonia, to the church of Philippi, in order to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, in order to plant a church there in Philippi. After Paul plants a church, he continues throughout Europe, 
preaching the gospel of Christ and planting churches. His journey takes him to the city of Rome where Paul is imprisoned and he is, um, he is put on death row. He is chained to, two Roman, to, chained to a Roman soldier continuously. And it is from this prison cell in Rome, in the midst of suffering, that Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. From prison, from suffering, Paul writes this letter of joy to the Philippians. And so what we get to see today is this, this letter of joy. And so in Acts 16, we see Paul planting the church. In Acts, I'm sorry, in Philippians chapter 1, we see the joy of gospel community. The joy of gospel community that is founded on prayer for one another, on partnership in the gospel, and on the perseverance of God. Last week, we looked at the joy in suffering, that God always uses the sufferings of his saints, that he uses it to promote the gospel both through our lives and the lives of those who trust in Christ. This week, we are going to see the joy of deliverance, the joy of this certain hope that whether in life or in death, we will be delivered. So we're going to read from Philippians chapter 1. And uh, boy, this feels weird. I'm sorry. Just kind of how it goes, I guess, with electronics. Time to get a new iPad. And I want to look and see the joy that we have in Christ, regardless of our circumstance, no matter how much we suffer. So here we are, Philippians chapter 1. Read in your Bibles with me if you would. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 through 26. We're going to start in the second half of verse 18, which is probably a new paragraph in your Bible. First, Philippians 1, verse 18. Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage and we understand the joy of the victory that we have in Christ, as we understand the joy both in this life and in the life to come, Lord, I pray that the strong desires of this world would lose their grasp on us, that Christ would become our great treasure, and that we would enjoy you above all else. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In verse 19, Paul says, For I know, and this is a perfect tense verb communicating his certainty. He says, For I know, for I am confident that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this suffering will turn out for my deliverance or for my salvation. Paul is 100% certain that he will be delivered from prison. Paul is 100% sure 
that he will be saved. And it will happen in one of two ways. And we see this throughout the passage. The first way that Paul might be delivered from prison is that he would be delivered onto life, that he would be lit free from prison, be able to go back and see the Philippians and rejoice. The second way that Paul might be delivered is through death, to go to be with Jesus forever. You see, Paul is in a win-win situation. The most succinct summary of this no-lose situation is in verse 21. Many of you know it. Many of you are familiar with it. Many of you have probably memorized it. Verse 21, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ. That is a win. And to die is gain, an even greater win. And so you can hear Paul throughout this passage wrestling with what is better. Because they're all so great options. Paul says in verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. You can hear the angst in his voice. Verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. All of us who are in Christ, all of us who trust in Christ for salvation, even in the midst of suffering, must understand today that we are faced with a win-win situation. There is no disappointment with God. While there might be temporal disappointments and temporal grieving, ultimately there is no disappointment with God. Because we will either be delivered in this life to live as Christ, or we'll be delivered from this life to die as gain. Now, as we look at this passage, we'll, we'll summarize it in verse 21. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Not only because it's the summary of this passage, but really it's the summary of the Christian life. And so let's look at these two passages and see the win-win scenario that faces all who are in Christ. First, to live is Christ. Now, this terminology, this phrase, to live is Christ, is a very captivating phrase. It's a very memorable phrase because it's not ordinary kind of English or language. And so we can remember, to live is Christ. But what does it mean? What does it mean to live is Christ? Well, this word live, uh, it's a Greek word for zao, and it, and it means more than existing, okay? It means more than simply breathing. It means more than having a pulse, all right, Thayer Dictionary, which defines some of the Greek words, says this. It's to enjoy real life. Metaphorically, it's to be full of vigor. And so what we see here is it means that our souls and our spirit and our life is animated, that we are living life to the fullest. So to live as Christ is to live life to the fullest. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean to live life to the fullest? Well, we'll see two things in this passage what it means to live life to the fullest, what it means to live is Christ. And both of them echo our shorter catechism, question one. And in that, in Westminster Shorter Catechism, it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why are you alive? What is the purpose of your life? Why do you get up in the morning? And the answer to that is man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Your chief end, my chief end, is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. And that's what we see here in this passage from the Apostle Paul. So first we see that our chief end, our 
To live as Christ means to glorify God. Look with me, if you would, in verse 20. Paul says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full vigor, now as always, Christ will be honored. This can also be translated magnified, that he would be declared great, that he would be esteemed highly, that he would be given glory and praise that he is due, that Christ will be honored or glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. What we see here is most important to Paul is not that he lives a great life or dies an easy death, but that whether he lives or whether he dies, that Christ is glorified, that God is glorified. Doing all things, not just ministry, for the glory of God. In another passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, no matter how big or small, even if it's as small as eating or drinking, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. A few years ago, in our building search process, we were looking at a building downtown. And we had different contractors come in so we could get a ballpark figure of how much it would cost to renovate this building. And we actually had a heating and cooling company come in because we knew we had to redo the whole HVAC system. And I still remember the man coming in and seeing a joy in his face, a delight in his speech. He was a kind man, a loving man. He would listen to me intently, and he cared for me. And so I thought, surely this man must know the Lord. And I asked him, I said, do you go to church? He said, yes, I'm at this church. I'm involved in this. And, and so a, a, a couple days later, I wrote him an email, and I said to him how much I appreciated how he was living for Christ in the midst of his work, how he was glorifying God even in servicing old schools, looking to install an HVAC system. And his reply was, thank you, Dan. That is one of the biggest compliments that I could ever receive. You see, every moment of life, even at work, is an opportunity to glorify God. Or as my friend Sean would say, to smell like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, we're told, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are God, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. We are the fragrance, it says. We are the aroma of Christ. And so let me ask you this question. Do you smell? Okay. Like what? (laughs) Do you smell like Jesus? When your neighbors interact with you, do you smell like Jesus? Jesus is the ultimate person who knew how to glorify God. Being like Jesus glorifies God. Do, Do the people in your office space, the people who work for you or above you, do you smell like Jesus to them? To the kids you teach, do you smell like Jesus? What about those closest to you? Do you smell like Jesus to your spouse? Do you smell like Jesus to your children? Do you smell like Jesus to your parents? This is what it means to glorify God, to live as Christ would live. Now, 
as we look at that, if we're honest, we know there are many times that we do not smell like Jesus. We probably smell like something else, right? Maybe like Oscar the Grouch. It is not only difficult to glorify God, it is impossible. And that's why just prior to this verse, in verse 19, Paul says this. Look with me. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that is, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, this will turn out for my deliverance. God in his grace not only provided the information and the details through the scriptures of how we might glorify him, but he also provided the source of power. He provided the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us that we might glorify God in all that we do, whether big or small. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, the things of this world, the attractions of this world, the lure of this world becomes less precious to us as Christ becomes more precious to us. It loses its grip. It loses its power. And we start to seek to live for God's glory in all that we do all the time, everywhere. And so we are called to live for the glory of God. But not only that, we're also called to enjoy God, to fully enjoy God forever. Verse 24, Paul says this again. He says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Now, what comes next is Paul's philosophy of ministry, what he wants to achieve in their hearts and in their lives of the people who know God. He says, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory or to rejoice in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's desire to live. Paul's desire to return to Philippi was not that they might rejoice in joy in Paul, but that they might rejoice in Christ. Paul is willing to give up anything for this. He's even willing to delay the glory of heaven. He says to die and be with Christ that is far better, but I want to be here that your joy might expand. You know, mankind seeks joy. That is no problem for us. We were built and wired to seek out joy. The problem is we seek ultimate joy in the wrong places. We seek joy in places that were never created to give joy. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen that show VH1 Behind the Music. But if you've seen it a long time ago, I don't know. I think it's re-airing now. But if you've seen it, you know, 20 years ago, the story is always the same. It's always the same. They, they interview this band, and this band has these dreams and aspirations. And all of their dreams come true. Everything they want comes true. They become famous. They have girls. They have money. They have whatever they want. And the story is always the same. They get everything life could possibly provide. But they don't have joy. Joy eludes them. And so they pursue it through self-destructive habits. You know, as you get that perfect job, as you get that perfect girl or guy, as you get that perfect Christmas gift or that perfect car, you know, there's that excitement, you enjoy it, but then it fades, right? Could it be that that fading joy is a gift from God 
to point you to a greater joy? Could it be that the fading joy in everything that you get, all the gifts of God, all the creation of God, all the things that God has given to you and blessed you with that you enjoy, but the joy runs out, could all of that be a a way of God communicating to you? You know what? There is a joy that is yours that is not depleted, that does not run dry, that is yours forever. You see, we were created to pursue joy. We were created to pursue joy in God. He created us to be content with nothing less than that. He created us to be content with nothing less than the joy that is found in God. The joy that is found in Christ. Where do you seek joy? When you are discouraged. When you are frustrated. Where do you seek joy? Maybe a cup of coffee. Maybe shopping, maybe ESPN, maybe some even more self-destructive ways. Permanent, enduring, soul-saturated joy is only found in one place. It's only found in God, and we are called to enjoy him forever. You know, something we see here, which is very interesting, I know we're lingering on this passage for a while, or on this first part. But what we see here is that having joy in God is an intentional pursuit. It's an intentional pursuit. We don't merely drift into joy. That there's some intentionality to it. Even even here, Paul is saying, I want to return to you so you can have joy. There's there's a ministry that attends it. There's an intentionality that that we grow in joy in Christ. And, And I think our world has this backwards, right? I mean, we think to ourselves, I do something because I enjoy it, right? Let's just take marriage, for example. When you are dating, you spend time with someone because you enjoy them, right? I enjoyed this person, and so I'm going to spend time with them. But as you go in marriage, as the honeymoon wears off, what you discover is you spend time with that person so that you can enjoy them. You see how that's flipped? We think, I enjoy them, so I'll spend time with them. But what we see is there's intentionality that we spend time with them that we might enjoy them more. It's the same with God. It's the same with Christ. There is intentionality in pursuing God through his word, through his people, and that we might enjoy him. I don't know about you, but when I come here on Sunday morning, my heart, my heart is, is calloused a little bit. It's a little bit hard. And when I come here and I sing praises to God and I hear the good news again, my heart is softened. And once again, I'm reminded of his love for me, and it gives me joy in him. You know, it is so much easier to have a 15-minute conversation on the phone than it is to spend 15 minutes in prayer, isn't it? But God is calling us to be intentional in having joy in him. So we see, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Before I move forward, let me just point out one more thing. We are so good at segmenting our lives. We are so good and making our lives like a newspaper, you know? In the newspaper, you have the business section, right? You have the entertainment section. You have the sports section. You have the funnies. You have the world news. And then one day a week, and at some obscure page, there's the religious section, right? We're so good at segregating our life and saying, you know what? I have my business. I have my sports. I have my entertainment. And then over here, I have my religion. That is a philosophy of life that 
God doesn't understand. It's a philosophy of life that abhors God. You see, our religion is to dominate all things. Our, our joy to glorify God and to enjoy God is to be over everything in life. There is no separation of sacred and secular. Everything, all of life is sacred to God. All of life is an opportunity to glorify and enjoy God. And so if I ask you, what is the purpose of going to school? The purpose is not to get into college and get a good job. The purpose is to glorify and enjoy God. And that matters when you're tempted to cheat. If I ask you, what is the purpose of dating? The purpose is not to find the perfect spouse. The purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's important when you're tempted to cross boundaries you shouldn't. If I ask you, what is the purpose of marriage? The purpose of marriage is not to be happy. It's not. The purpose of marriage is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if we mistake that, we will leave as soon as we are unhappy. If I ask you, with the primary purpose of life, the primary purpose of anything. It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is what it means to live is Christ. The second part, the second win, to die is gain. How is death of a believer gain? Well, James Montgomery Boyce points out three reasons why death is gain, and I want to adopt them or steal them, whichever word you want to use. And he has three things. And the first is this, death is gained for believers because we will gain permanent freedom from evil. In verse 23, Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for this is far better. The word depart here is the same word used when a slave would gain its freedom or when a, when a camp of soldiers would break and it, it describes a permanent freedom from something. You know, looking at this letter, it is amazing that Paul can speak with such joy because Paul is in prison. Paul knows what it's like to suffer. We discussed this last week, that on five different occasions, Paul received 39 lashes. 40 would kill a man. 39, five times he was lashed within a lash of his life. That Paul had been beaten on multiple occasions. That Paul was in prison. And what we learn here is that in heaven, there is no prison. There are no lashings. There is no beating. And there are no scars. That evil is permanently defeated. Right now, you may read in the newspapers about what's happening with ISIS in the Middle East. And we see certain religious leaders telling us that there is a genocide happening among Christians. There's this great hope that to die is gain, that evil will be put away forever. Revelation 21 describes heaven and it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. There, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. For Christians around the world, this is a great hope that death is gain for us because evil is conquered. Secondly, we see death is gain because we will permanently be like Jesus. First John 3 says this, it says, Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, like Jesus for we shall see him as he is. What we are told here, and this is deep, but what we are told is that our progressive sanctification in heaven will match our positional 
justification now. Let me explain that in clear English. If today you trust in Christ, you are declared righteous. God looks at you as if you had never sinned. He looks at you and he sees you as holy, as set apart, as flawless, because the righteousness of Christ is applied to you. But we know through our experience that we still sin, that we do not act according to our identity many times. And what we are told is that in heaven, we will be who we are already declared. They were declared righteous, that we were declared clean, that we were declared holy. And in heaven, we will act in perfect sync with our identity. That in heaven, we will be perfectly obedient. In heaven, we will perfectly glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so we see the gain for believers is this permanent freedom from evil, a permanence of being like Jesus. And finally, the best, the greatest gain of heaven is that we get to be with Jesus. You know, there's so many little poems and so many people that talk about heaven like this family reunion. Like, I can't wait to get to heaven so I can go fishing with my grandpa again. Have you ever heard that stuff? Or I can't wait to get to heaven so I can give my mom a kiss on the cheek. Or I can't get, wait to get to heaven to see my unborn child. You know, those are good things. But that's not the greatest thing in heaven. The greatest thing in heaven, Paul tells us in verse 23, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. You see what makes heaven so great is not that it is a beautiful place, but it's the person who is there and reigning and that we get to enjoy. What makes heaven so great is Jesus is there. When Trish and I were dating, she lived in the Eau Claire area. Uh, her family was from a small town called Fall Creek. And Fall Creek was this great little town. People nicknamed it Mayberry, all right, because families seemed to really get along and, and people were pretty moral. I mean, the, the one that really blew my mind is at the school, they didn't have any locks on their lockers, okay? So this was like a Mayberry little town. It was a great little town, a beautiful little town on a river. There was beaches and there's rafting and stuff like that. And so when we were dating, I would come up and I would visit her and we'd stay at her parents. And, um, and I remember one time I had to leave at like 10 o'clock at night because I had other obligations. And so at 10 o'clock at night, I drove up, chewing on sunflower seeds to keep me awake. And the reason why I endured that trip was not because Fall Creek was such a great place. It's because Trisha was there. You see, the thing that made Fall Creek so great was that my wife was there. Well, not my wife at the time, but my girlfriend was there. My fiance was there. What makes heaven so great is not that it is a moral place, though it is. It's not that, that we will be free from evil, which we will be, or that we will be like Jesus, which we will be. The best part of heaven is that Jesus will be there. And so you see, there is much gain for those who trust in Christ, much gain for those who are destined for heaven. That's why Paul can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me end with this story. Erskine Beasley stood before his church. You probably don't know who he is, but he stood before his church and he asked this question. He said, are you afraid to die? Are you afraid to die? And then he told a story of two men. He said, there are these two men, Doug and Rich, and they were in the sands of Saudi Arabia, waiting for the ground warfare to start in Desert Storm. 
And one night, Rich called over to his friend Doug and asked his friend Doug, are you afraid to die? And Doug said, no, I'm not afraid to die. And so quickly, Rich scurried over to him. And Rich says, Doug, why are you not afraid to die? And so Doug opened up his little Bible. He turned to the back where the plan of salvation is that talks about how Jesus died for our sins and he rose on the third day and how, how we can be alive with him if we trust in him. And so Doug thought about that. I'm sorry, Rich thought about that and he went back. The next night, Rich came back again. And he said, tell me again, why are you not afraid to die? And again, Doug pulled out his little Bible and walked him through the good news of Christ and all that he had done for him. That night, Doug played prayed with Rich to invite Jesus into his heart. He went back to his foxhole. And the next day, within an hour of the ground campaign starting, Rich was shot and killed. Doug wrote a letter home to his folks, as he promised that he would. And and three weeks later, Doug received a response. And it said this, Dear Doug, it's from It's from Rich's parents. Dear Doug, I have most of Rich's possessions, including the little Bible. And I looked through that Bible and I saw in the back that Rich signed his name to receive Jesus Christ the day before he died. He said, and I found something else on the back page of that testament. In Rich's handwriting, I found the words, I am not afraid to die. Let me ask again, are you afraid to die? If you don't know Christ, you should be. For the unbeliever, earth is the closest you will ever come to heaven. But for those who trust in Christ, this is the furthest you will ever be from heaven. For the unbeliever, death is the biggest loss you will ever endure. But for the believer, death is our greatest gain. God has brought you here by his, by his providence. There is no mistake, no accident that you are here today to hear this question. Are you afraid to die? You know, it's so interesting as, as I meditated on this verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus is the perfect example of that. To live is Christ, right? He lived perfectly, flawlessly to glorify God, to enjoy God. He did that without error. But what did Christ have to gain? You know, we have much to gain. Freedom from evil. Jesus had that before he came to earth. He, he didn't have that to gain. He had that in heaven. He was free from evil. Perfect righteousness. That's, that's what we have to gain. But Jesus had that before he came to earth. Perfect unity with Godhead. Again, Christ had that before he came to earth. And so what did Jesus have to gain When he died upon the cross, he only had one thing to gain. His church. The only thing Christ had to gain that he did not have before he came to this earth was you. You see, for Christ to die, his gain was you. But our gain is him for all eternity. Are you afraid to die? Jesus has given you the opportunity to accept him as your savior, to endeavor in this win-win situation in which you get to be with him for all eternity. Trust in Christ for your salvation and fear no more. Trust in Christ 
Your victory is certain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this passage, let us remember the good news that to live is Christ. That it means we get to labor for you, the one that we most cherish. That we get to glorify you in all that we do. That we get to enjoy you as the giver of every good gift. But also, do not let us forget that to die is gain. Lord, there is a good chance there are people here today or people that we know that will not be here a year from now. We may not be here a year from now. We may die. Let us remember that death is gain for those who trust in Christ. And let us rest and rejoice in the certainty of our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we look to the Lord's table, we are reminded of the cost that Jesus paid to gain us. We are reminded of the sacrifice he made that he might have his church, his bride. If you're here today and you do not trust in Christ as your Savior, we would urge you, trust in him, that you might know to live as Christ and to die as gain. If you're here today and you do trust in Jesus as your Savior, this is to nourish you, to live as Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, and to remind you that death is gain. We read in, 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 uh, in Matthew 26, that as Jesus gathers around the Lord's table, around the table, he says, he takes the bread, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and after thanking God for it, he gave it to him, saying, Drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he points us to heaven and saying, I will not eat or drink of this again until we do this together in the kingdom of God, in heaven for all eternity. If you're here today and you trust in Christ for your salvation, take this, reminding yourself that to live is Christ and to die is is gain. As we distribute, please take and hold the elements and we'll partake together as one body.